So as we get ready to give our offerings, I'm actually going to um, introduce our speaker first because our speaker is also the guy who's going to play our offertory song. So I want to introduce him to you. To get my glasses on here. Um, so my, Michael Hanna is a guy that you've seen up here many times because he sits right over there on the piano. And Michael Hanna is also on our staff part-time, and he is our communications director. So you have seen the fruit of his labor many times because you're, you might even be holding one in your hand. It's the S News. <laughs> so anytime you see cool graphics and how nice that looks, Michael's responsible. And if you see the cool slides up here, Michael's responsible. And if you see cool stuff on our website, Michael probably, probably had, a, had a role in it. And if it looks terrible, I probably did it. So, um, um, you know, my role here, I'm Francis, for those who don't know me, and I work here part-time, and I work with our deacons and our counseling and any kind of classes that have to do with relationships or mental health or things like that. And so today is kind of a second of a series of four that we're doing with an emphasis on mental health. And I want to introduce Michael today because he's going to share his story, and so you'll see a whole new side of him. And just a little bit about Michael. Uh, he started attending Lookout Mountain, that was the previous church that many of you also attended where Peter was preaching back in 2004 and 5. In 2006, he graduated from DU with a Bachelor's of Music in Music comp Composition. In 2007, he was in the world premiere of a Chinese opera at the Central City Opera House. It was entirely in Mandarin, and he had to play the part of a chair in, the, in one scene, <laughs> okay? In 2008, he made the horrible mistake of going to law school. And in 2009, he came to his senses. He left law school and recorded his fourth CD of a solo piano music coming home. He also began working for Adam's Place, a nonprofit organization dedicated to changing lives through creative and inspiring mental health education. In 2012, along with his mother Tammy at Adam's Place and 150 other artists and authors and contributors, he published a book called Crazy, a creative and personal look at mental illness. The book won the 2013 Colorado Book Award in the pictorial category. I have my copy and it's amazing. It's a work of art and he's got them back there at the Connect Center. And if you want to check it out, it's just, it's a beautiful book and some really great stuff in there and insight on mental illness. In 2014, along with a team of volunteers in Adam's Place, he created a video called This Is Your Brain, as well as a website. And you're going to see more about that video here in a little bit when he shares his story. So his CDs are wonderful. I tell Michael I have them in my car continually, and I'll plug them in when I need a, a little, um, oh, stress at the end of the day, and I just need to hear that piano music, and it's like, oh, it's beautiful. So it ministers to me a lot. So... Um, we're going to give our offering now and enjoy the offertory song, and then Michael will be coming up to share. I don't belong to me 
from this night And if I ever knew you And if I ever loved you Would you come and save me from this night? Thank you for music for the song that uh, we sing in worship. I pray that you would uh, help me sing that song this morning. Your name, amen. So I wrote that song, more or less. It was almost exactly 15 years ago. It was September of 2002, and I was in my, my sophomore year at CU Boulder. I was struggling with serious depression at the time. Um, I felt abandoned by God. And that song was my own version of, of Psalm 22, uh, which we can go to that slide here for that. Um, Psalm 22, 1 and 2, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. That was written by King David, but was quoted by Jesus on the cross, and uh, it's, uh, there's a universal element to that song. I think we all have felt forsaken at one time or another. Um, the verses, uh, I'm going to go through a few of the lyrics to this song. Um, it's the same more or less as it always has been, but I must confess that it's starting to win. Sort of an acknowledgement that I've always had this, this sadness, this despair, this depression inside of me. Um, but I really felt like at, at that time in my life, it was really starting to swallow me. Um, I was uh, kind of suicidal and, and depressed. And um, the next uh, line from the pre-chorus, yeah, where then were you going when you said my name? Um, throughout the song, I'm asking where God is, but this also sort of was like, uh, where were you going with that um, kind of question? Like, what were you... What were you thinking when you said my name, when you called me into existence? Because I don't really know right now. Um, and then the chorus is, is an appeal, a plea, if I ever knew you, if I ever loved you, could you come and save me from this night? Um, it was, I felt like I'd been a good Christian, like I'd, I'd served God, you know, I'd, I'd felt a lot closer to him in, in some of my high school years. And um, so it's like, well, if... If I've ever been any, any good to you, can, can you come and save me? Um, so uh, I thought it would be good to start with that song because last week, Peter, he spoke about baffled kings composing Alleluia. And um, I have a degree in music composition, so I can, tell, I can tell you a lot more than you probably want to know about music, about functional harmony and counterpoint, non-chord tones, serialism, uh, pitch classes, tricord inversions, voice leading, orchestration. I can tell you about the evolving uh, roles of dissonance and consonance over history and how they've changed, about the ubiquity of anhemitonicism in English and American folk music, which actually is really interesting. <laughs> it doesn't sound like it, but... Um, so if you're curious, come talk to me afterwards. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna talk about it now. But in other words, I have a good grasp of what it takes to write music. Um, but there is a part of it that still baffles me. Um, when I'm writing music, and I'm sure anybody in the audience here who writes music or does any kind of art, you can relate to this. I sometimes get to a point where I just know it's right. Like, I, um, it just feels right. And right's maybe not the best word because it implies that it's wrong before that. It's not wrong, but it's not, it's not quite there. And I know this because there's so many times when I'm writing music and working that it's, it doesn't feel quite right. And if I keep wrestling with it, I keep rest sometimes I never get there, and that's frustrating, but sometimes it, it clicks and it feels right. And uh, that's when I know that that was, that was a song I was longing to hear um, inside all the jumble of notes and chords and lyrics and everything. It was there. I just had to sort of uncover it. And it's much more like 
discovery than invention. Um, it's, uh, it's discovering this song that is so much bigger than me. And uh, it's not something I can claim to have created. I just am sort of a, a vessel in, in that moment. And that's, that's the most fulfilling part of, of artistic, that's the most artistic fulfillment, I think, when you get to that moment. Um, so uh, that really is what you would say, uh, what you call worship. And um, Peter talked about it last week when he, he talked about um, two epistemologies. So there we go. Um, and epistemology is a way of, of coming to know something. It's a study of the way of coming to know something. But um, so I got to do this right. Let's see. So there's an epistemology of technology <laughs> and of worship. Those, those are thanks. It's exhausting. No wonder you no wonder you get all sweaty. That's it's, it's tiring. So the epistemology of technology. I think it's um, worth, at least for my, for, for my purposes, I wanted to explain. So it's uh, technologica, it's the art and craft, study of. So we could say that, that that's the, from the Greek. So it's basically the, the study of, um, well, arts and crafts, you could say, is technology. Not usually how we think about it. Maybe a better way to phrase it would be um, the study of artistry and craftsmanship would be, although we should, uh, we really should say, um, craftspersonship is probably better. <laughs> so if technology is the study of artistry and craftspersonship, then um, we look at worship. And worship is the, uh, we're going to go to the, the next slide here. I want to use the right wording so it's not confusing to people. Um, worship is, is looking at something greater than ourselves. Uh, you'll have to Oh, those are the next slides. Yeah. So technology is about mastery, and it's about control. Um, worship is the way that we come to know things that are greater than ourselves, like that song, It's Greater Than Me. Um, and it's about surrendering control. It's about surrender. So um, using this sort of technology and worship terminology, I can sort of paraphrase um, a, a line from, from, from Peter's sermon. Yeah, we can... We can come to know things less wonderful than ourselves through the study of artistry and craftspersonship um, the way a composer might come to know that a cadence can be strengthened by using a second inversion tonic chord in a predominant position, the so-called cadential 6-4. However, That's exactly what I, was thinking. I know, he said sodium and chlorine make salt, which is also true. Um, and I'll talk about salt, we'll get there, but uh, however, we can only come to know things greater than ourselves through worship not through seizing control, but through surrendering control, the way a husband might come to know his bride or a creature might come to know his or her creator. So the thing about music and, and art and that rightness, when you know that something is right, it's really cool and kind of weird, is that it can be right at a particular time and place, and then later it can be right again. In fact, it can be even righter than, than it was in the past because it draws on the past, it builds on itself. Um, so it's uh, in the clip that we're, we're going to watch here in just a second. Um, after the opening segment about stigma, um, the music cuts out, and when it comes back in, it's an instrumental remake of more or less the song that I just played for you guys. Um, and uh, it's still in a context where it's about mental illness, but um, now my Psalm 22, it's no longer a cry of despair, but it's the theme to a hopeful call to action. So uh, let's watch that first clip. Live television audience was allowed to see a man who is arguably the face of mental illness, a man described as a monster. Many are facing misdemeanor charges and will bond out. That means even though they have been diagnosed with a mental disorder, they could soon be back in your neighborhood. I mean, what really happened here, the mental health situation in the country is in complete breakdown. And if we leave these homicidal maniacs on the street, they don't obey the law, they could care less about it, they're gonna kill. People who are going around shooting people are the ones who have mental health issues. At the root problem is usually a mental disorder. For mental health conditions. That person very easily be your next little Ranging from depression to anxiety. So therefore you should be concerned about him. He has access to coming in contact with your kids. To some sleep disturbance. Uh, and with the entire 
family. In China, they're having a similar phenomenon where these things are occurring with more frequency. You can't get your hands on the guns in China, but it's happening with knives and axes in schools. Exceedingly mentally ill. It's a hundred percent a mental health problem. say you can never fully defend yourself against a madman it's impossible In a high school classroom with 30 students, 15 will develop a mental illness in their lifetime. Seven have a mental illness that has already emerged. And three have attempted suicide. This is real. This is relevant. This is important. This is your brain. This is your brain we're talking about. That magnificent and mysterious wrinkly mass inside your skull. Your brain is an organ. No, not, not that kind of organ. This kind. Your brain is an organ. Ugh. A collection of cells and tissue. An essential part of your physical body. Okay, we know that, right? But sometimes we don't think about it that way. We sometimes separate physical from mental in a way that implies that one is real and the other is made up. Which is why the term mental illness is kind of unfortunate. Type 1 diabetes. Problem with the pancreas. The organ that produces insulin. Asthma. Problem with the lungs. The organs that exchange carbon dioxide and oxygen. Anxiety disorder. Problem with the person. Problem with their character. Too high-strung. Too sensitive. Too weak. Too irrational. Too emotional. No. It's a problem with the brain, the organ that evaluates and responds to threats. In the case of high anxiety, the amygdala, which responds in time of fear by activating the fight-or-flight pathways, is often overactive. Fight or flight refers to a physiological state where your body and brain are on high alert. It's a survival mechanism designed to keep you alive when you are in danger. When the alarm goes off and fight or flight gets activated, it's... This response is really only intended for short-term dangers. So when the hormones and body systems involved are active for extended periods of time, which is what happens in chronic anxiety, your body and brain are actually functioning differently. The hippocampus, which is involved in the consolidation of memories, is damaged by the surge of neurotransmitters, making it more difficult to learn and remember important things. That's right, an overactive amygdala can cause brain damage. That's not a character flaw. It's a problem with the structure and function of your brain. Daniel Goleman coined the term amygdala hijack to describe this situation when an overactive or malfunctioning amygdala prompts an emergency survival response before the rational brain even has a chance to assess the situation. When your brain receives a stimulus, uh, some piece of information from one of your five senses, the thalamus transmits part of that stimulus to the amygdala and sends the rest to the neocortex, or thinking brain. 
The amygdala processes information a millisecond earlier than the rational brain, meaning it can activate fight or flight before the rational brain even processes the stimulus. Your amygdala hijacks your brain, prompting you to act immediately. This happens automatically without you having to, or getting to, think, think about, about it. it. This is a problem with one of your organs. This is a problem with the physical structure and function of your brain. This, this is a, a mental, mental illness. illness. Welcome back to This Is Your Brain on KMRI. I'm your host, Michael Hanna. I'm joined here in the studio by psychiatrist Sarah Bellum. We also have on the line renowned neuroscientist Sir Arthur Ibram. Thank you for joining us, Sir Ibram. Before the break, I promised we'd get to your phone call, so let's do just that. Jimmy in Albuquerque. So if you want to see the rest of that, you're going to have to watch the video yourself. Um, I wanted to introduce the radio show component, so when it shows up later, you're not like, what is that all about? That's from um, This Is Your Brain, and it's a video that we did for high school students. It's fast-paced and engaging, and you should totally check it out on thisisyourbrain.org. Um, we go on in that, in that next clip to talk about anxiety and depression, because it's really overwhelming all of the different mental illnesses there are. I mean, there's like 300 of them in the DSM-5, and uh, people can get bogged down in that. And this is a panic disorder or an anxiety disorder, or is this OCD? Is this... And the, what's really important to understand is that anxiety and depression are two things that are, first of all, common to almost all mental illnesses, but second, common to all human beings. We all experience anxiety and depression. It's not like just having anxiety or having depression means you're, you're crazy. Um, the, the difference is that when, when you, we call it a disorder or an illness is when it gets to the point where it starts to affect your life and your relationships in, in a negative way. Um, that's a very general sort of uh, summary of that. But I, my, my own story involves OCD. I was diagnosed with OCD when I was a senior in high school. And um, OCD is, involves obsessions and compulsions. It's obsessive-compulsive disorder. Obsession is like a worry that you can't stop. And a compulsion is some sort of a behavior that interrupts that worry. So it's, um, I might, uh, if I'm worried about leaving something at home, I might check my backpack to make sure I've got it. And everybody does that, right? But then if I do it again a few minutes later, and then if I have to pull over on my way to school to check again, uh, and then if I'm late to class because I have to stop and check again, it's because each time that worry comes back up, I can't reassure myself. It's not like I have short-term memory loss. It's just like, well, did I really make sure that it was in there or not? I mean, um, a, a good an example that I use, uh, because it's OCD is so absurd that, um, and you've probably heard people say, oh, that's so, you're being so OCD. Um, and uh, it, it's almost, it, it can be funny. It, it is funny because it's, it's, it's absurd. You worry about completely irrational things. Um, but the line between, between absurdity and tragedy is a really thin one. And it, it's also tragic because of the way it separates you from the people in your life. So I usually talk about um, my pens. Uh, pens used to be a big deal. Last night I had a pen to show as a visual aid. I had one. I don't know where it is today, but I was thinking, you know what, that's, that's pretty cool because I wouldn't have been able to even go on stage um, in, in the past. I used to always carry three pens. They were 0.7 millimeter gel ink uniball pens, and uh, I had a blue, black, and red because you never know when you're going to need more than one color. And yeah, so um, I carried those with me everywhere I went, along with a bunch of other stuff in my pockets and backpack. I had a lint roller, a three-hole punch, and um, it stapler, tape. I had two backpacks, actually. But um, I had my pens all the time. Well, when you have pens all the time and people know you have pens all the time, they ask to borrow your pen. It's like having a truck. It's, hey, can you help me move? As soon as people know. So as soon as people know you always have pens, they're like, hey, can I borrow your pen? Um, and the people that I'm around the most are the ones most likely to ask to borrow my pen, my, my family. And uh, I didn't like loaning out my pens because you may never have noticed, but most people don't take very good care of, of pens, of writing instruments in general, but um, they really don't. And so I might hand it to them and they, they walk away with it and they set it down somewhere and I never find it again or I find it later and I've been without my blue pen all day. Or they'll leave the cap off or they'll put it in their mouth like absentmindedly, like just, ah, oh, that's really gross. Or if they're trying to get a rise out of me, they'll like stick it up their nose. Oh, I'm sorry. 
family's great. Um, <laughs> but I have my, my mother and my brother both have ADHD, and so they are they were really bad about not returning my pen or putting it in their mouth or what. So I didn't like loaning my pens out, and I really felt like, you know, when I did, that was that was a, an act of charity because it's a free country. You can carry your own pens. You don't need any sort of permit to carry a pen in your pocket. And uh, they didn't, and I did. I had it, and so for me to loan it to them was a, I was doing a big favor. And so for them to then turn around and, and disrespect that, I mean, that was. That was, that was an affront. I mean, they, they, they were really disrespecting me because this is my, you know, part of my life, part of what I do. And so for them to disrespect it, they're disrespecting me as, as a human being and my own, my own personal integrity. And uh, you don't do that. And so the only way that I could really understand how someone could possibly be so disrespectful, there were really two possibilities. Um, one, they were bad, because bad people do bad things. You rob a convenience store, you put a pen in your mouth. I mean, it, bad people, I don't know why, but there are bad people out there, so they do bad things. Or they're, they're, they're stupid. Like, they just don't understand the, what it means to be respectful. And they don't understand what a big deal this was. And they would prove it every time they'd say, it's not that big a deal. Because it is. And it was. And so, as soon as somebody said that, I'm like, okay, are you dumb or are you, are you bad? And, uh, I mean, I didn't say that. I, 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 I said that. I said that in my, in, to myself, um, and not really consciously, but that's sort of how I viewed people. I'd size them up, and I'd be like, you know, you really just don't know, do you? Or, I, I don't really like you very much. But um, when that's your family, that, I mean, that's horrible to go around all the time. They always felt like I was judging them, because I was. And they always felt like I was mad at them, because I was. And uh, I really felt like a martyr. You know, you can't choose your family. This was my cross to bear. I just had to deal. <laughs> I had to deal with these, these bad and or stupid people. And um, that's ridiculous. And I can totally see that that's ridiculous now. But I really, I mean, I, I, hadn't, I hadn't put it into words like this back then. This is really how I felt. And this was just one little aspect of one thing that I did. Like I told you, I carried two backpacks. I mean, there were lots of things besides just the pens that were problematic. Um, so after a really bad junior year, uh, we, we started talking about OCD. My, my mother in particular, she, she started talking to me about it and about how it, it really seemed like this was destroying my life. And I was, I was willing to acknowledge that, yeah, I looked at the diagnostic criteria and yeah, that, that sounds like me. But the good news was I was handling it fine. Um, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't causing me any real problems. So, um, and she disagreed. So did my whole family. And uh, we sort of argued about it. Um, and she, she appealed to me. She's like, well, will you, will you try medication for this? And I, I don't need a pill to make myself better. To make, I mean, people don't do that. I'm, I'm, I'm handling this just fine. And she couldn't really convince me that that was the right thing to do. But she, did, she made an appeal about how it, it, I, was, I was withdrawn, and I was not me, and I was always... I was always grouchy, and I was always, it, it, it felt like they'd kind of lost me. And so it was an appeal just as a gesture of love and trust. Will you try this for six months? Just try Prozac for six months. Um, and I, I agreed to it as a gesture of love and trust. And um, I went into it with a characteristic stubbornness. I, I was going to be compliant, but I knew that I'd get to the end of the six months and I'd be able to unleash the biggest I told you so ever because I'd be like, look, you just wasted six months of my life. And uh, good thing I'm always right. Um, <laughs> so I, yeah, so I went into it. Um, and it wasn't like it was a secret. I talked about it, called it the drug trial. Um, and uh, so, you know, somebody asked me, it was about two or three months into it, they asked me, so how's it going with, with the Prozac? And, no difference. I mean, it's the same. And my whole family burst out laughing because they'd been talking about it behind my back, but um, about, how, about how different I was. And, and so in, in that moment, I'm like, well, what do you mean? And they, they gave me a few examples of things that really in, in the past would have really, really bothered me. And they were just, you know, stuff from the last week or whatever. And I thought back on it. And I'm like, yeah, well, but that wasn't that big a deal. And then, wait a minute, did I just... Did I just think that? That's not that big a deal? Um, because that's what people have been saying to me all my life, and I just didn't believe them. I, I had no perspective before, and I, all of a sudden, for the first time ever, I was able to 
believe, at least, that someone might be able to say that and not be bad or stupid, which was really, I mean, that was a big step for me. So I remember I was um, sort of wrestling with this question because that was about two or three months in, right? So I still had the, the rest of this six-month drug trial. And I was at church um, one day, and we were in youth group, and we broke out into small groups, and we're talking about the things that we were, we were struggling with and, and trying to be really open about it. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about this because this is a big deal to me. So I shared sort of not nearly as much as I'm sharing now because I didn't have this understanding back then, but basically that I was, you know, I was trying this medication and that I was really thinking about maybe staying on it at the end of the six months, and it was something I was praying about and wrestling with, and is that something that's, you know, it was a decision that was really important to me. And so when we got around to, the, to praying about it, um, the, the leader, the guy who was one of the, the youth leaders there, instead of praying in, in, about my decision and, and helping me, he prayed, he, he prayed at me. You know how people do that sometimes? It's like they're telling you what to eat. And he was, he was praying at me that I would realize that if I just cast my cares on the Lord, that I wouldn't have any of these issues and that um, I would basically, you know, he went all out but saying that, that medication is bad and it's, a, it's an evil crutch. And so, of course, I came away from that feeling, well, this isn't a safe thing to talk about at church. I can't talk about this at church, um, and, uh, which is really a shame. Most people, I think, wouldn't respond quite like that guy did, but it, it's, I don't think it feels like a safe thing to talk about at church or a lot of other places, for that matter. I mean, when, when, you, when you talk about, whenever I bring up the subject of medication, whether it's in a video that we've done or, or in, in one of my own talks or just in a conversation with people, people bristle to that. A lot of people, they, they're kind of like, well, you're not saying that everybody needs to take medication, are you? You aren't saying that that's the only way to, to solve things. You aren't, and no, I'm not, absolutely not. Um, medication isn't right for everybody. And it's also not the only thing that, I mean, there's nothing, there's no pill you can take that'll just make everything better. I mean, for me, um, with, my, with Prozac and my OCD, it enabled me to believe that there was an other way of looking at things. But that was just the start of, of the journey. Um, the brain has this really cool property called neuroplasticity. Uh, and it's, it means that you can learn new stuff, basically. You can retrain, because our brains, we condition ourselves to do all kinds of things. And um, compulsive behaviors, a lot of them are, are conditioned. We do them without thinking about them. And so um, you can retrain your brain, but it doesn't happen automatically. But the Prozac was, it, it enabled me to work on that and work on that through cognitive behavioral therapy and through just a, a lot of awareness of what was going on. Um, so it, it's, it's, not, it's not the only thing. And it, it's not for everyone and it's not forever. Some people need medication for a short period of time and then they get better. Um, but I, I, I do think that even if it is, for, forever, because I'm going to be on medication for the rest of my life. It changed my life, and it's, it's something that is, you know, I, I, I probably wouldn't be here, literally would not be here um, if, if it were not for medication. I was really depressed and suicidal, and, and I, I, yeah, I, 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 I don't know where I would be. Um, but the, the question that I'd like, just a, a, a quick group survey. So how many people out there know someone, or, or are someone, I guess if you are someone, you know yourself, not in like a philosophical sense, but just um, uh, with type 1 diabetes. Does anybody know any diabetics, type 1 diabetics? Yeah, my whole home crowd should, yeah. Um, yeah, well, those people take insulin every day, and uh, you don't really hear a lot of stories about, well, we diagnosed you, but we don't like people to be dependent on insulin, so we just hope you can manage your blood sugar on your own. Uh, no, I mean, that, that, would, be, that would be absurd. Um, how many people out here know somebody or, or themselves take a vitamin, a multivitamin, any kind of supplement at all? Yeah, okay, that's, that's true. And, and some of them take a lot. I know my, my grandparents are here. Good morning, guys. Um, a vitamin, by definition, is something that your body needs but cannot synthesize itself. And so you need to get them through your diet. And if you don't get enough through your diet, you need to take a multivitamin or a supplement. And if you don't have, there, there are different vitamins do different things, but your, your body and brain won't work right if you don't have these vitamins. Um, and the last one, how many of you out there uh, know somebody or yourself uh, use salt, like on your food or... I hope everybody's hand goes up. If not, I don't believe you. But um, 
In this country, the salt that you, at least some of the salt, if not all the salt that you use, is iodized. So, I mean, it's, it is sodium and chlorine, but there's also a little bit of iodine in there because it's really easy to iodize salt. And iodine deficiency is, is really serious. Um, it is, it's been identified as the number one preventable cause of intellectual and developmental disabilities in the world. Um, it's preventable because it's so easy and it still affects over two billion people have iodine deficiency. And there are a lot of great charity nonprofits that work on just getting iodized salt to like third world countries because um, it's, it's something that would be so easy to, to make such a big difference in these people's lives. But, so if you eat salt regularly, and we all do, whether you like it or not, it's in stuff, um, that's something, that's a, that's a substance you're taking to make your body and brain work Right, so I, it, it's, not, it, it's not such an abhorrent thing, is, is what I'm trying to say. And it's really, in this day and age, it's, 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 it's miraculous. It's miraculous the effect that it's had on me. And if you don't think it's miraculous, you probably don't understand what's going on on a biochemical level. I started as a biochem and math major before I transferred and got a degree in music. And so I, I, I really, I mean, it, it blows your mind what goes on inside the brain. It's really fascinating. But there's a story about, um, a priest, and I don't remember, I don't remember where this, this took place. I, I keep thinking it was Arkansas, but I, when I tell the story, then it feels wrong if I don't use an accent, but I'm not going to. So <laughs> wherever it was, it, uh, it, was a, it was a downtown area that was, it was flooded. This, the, the levees had broken, and it was, it was, it was flooding. And so this priest, um, he hadn't abandoned his church, but uh, as the waters began to rise, you know, he runs up onto the, the second floor, and one of his parishioners comes by in a rowboat and says, Father, climb in, I'll, I'll row you to safety. And he says, no, no, I'm praying to the Lord, he'll save me. And uh, a few hours later, he's had to go up to the third floor because the second floor is all, is all flooded. He's up at the top, and uh, the police come by with a motorboat, and he's like, climb on in, Father, we'll, we'll drive you to safety. He says, no, no, I'm praying to the Lord, the Lord will save me. Um, finally, five or six hours later, it's, it's almost nightfall, and he's on the roof because the, the, the church is, is almost completely underwater. And the National Guard, they come in with a helicopter, and they've got a spotlight. Climb onto the rope. We drop down. And um, he shouts back, no, I'm praying to the Lord. He will save me. So um, when he's then in, in heaven later, because, yeah, he walks up to God, and he says, hey, wh what's the deal? I prayed to you all day long, and you didn't save me. And God says, well, I sent you a rowboat, I sent you a motorboat, I sent you a helicopter, <laughs> what more do you want? Um, and, uh, yeah, I don't actually think that happened, but it's a good story <laughs> because in Arkansas or anywhere else, but um, that, that's, that's kind of how I, I mean, God really used medication in my life as, 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 a, mean, as a lifeline. Um, one of the things that it really enabled me to do is to love other people. Uh, you know, when you're going around feeling that people are either bad or, or stupid, it's I mean, you can, like, pity them maybe, but it's, it's hard to really love them. And fundamentally, I'm not, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm definitely more of, if there are fighters and lovers, I'm a, I'm a lover, not a fighter. I, and so I, it's not me, the person who's, who God created me is not someone who's, who doesn't love. I do love, but I, I, it, this, I was sort of behind this shell. And uh, I was able to to love other people in, in a way that I hadn't been able to for a long, long time. Um, I took my faith very seriously. I, I read the, before I was done with high school, I read the Bible cover to cover four times, which bothered me because I, I like prime numbers. And so it would have been better if I'd stopped at three or if I'd gone on to finish. I started it a fifth time, but I didn't get all the way through. I was on medication then, so maybe that was why I didn't feel the need to. But, um, I really took it seriously, and I was trying to reconcile all of these, especially some of the Old Testament passages that didn't seem to jive with the New Testament things, and, and trying to construct this paradigm and, and that, that, that made sense, this view of God. And um, it, it was hard to, to reconcile the idea of God being loving and God being um, almighty and, and, and having the, sending people to hell and, and, and towards creating some people with the intent of then someday sending them to hell. So I, I really put all of my, my chips in on the, the Arminian, Arminianism square. I, I believed that, okay, well, it's a choice and that's what we have to do. If we choose, it's up to us. And so, you know, if you make the wrong choice, then sorry, you had a chance and you blew it. Um, and, uh, 
I had a really great, like, I, I had this whole apologetics thing. I was pretty unassailable. Um, I, would, I would argue with people and, and be pretty convincing. But it really was, the thing I didn't really see was how that undercuts the idea that God is omnipotent. omnipotent. Um, I thought he was partly potent uh, because he could, he could do anything except override our decision because our decision was everything. And um, that was the one thing that he couldn't touch. And uh, that's really, that's really ab absurd when, when you stop and think about it. Um, and it was something that, uh, so then when I, when I was in college in my, my sophomore year, that's when I wrote more or less the, the song that I played for you earlier. And um, I was really depressed at that time. And I'm, I, I was thinking, I didn't, I didn't choose this. You know, if my, if my choice is so great, how, you know, I, I've been, I'd been a good student, I'd worked really hard, and I'd, I'd been a good Christian, and I'd, I'd done everything right. I mean, I know nobody's good, and I knew I was very aware of all of my shortcomings and, and, and dwelled on them a lot, actually, but, um, but I, I, I didn't deserve this. I felt like this was really unfair, because that, that's one of the weird things about like bipolar disorder is OCD, it, it, it ought, like my OCD definitely was showing up early, in my early childhood. Um, but, uh, but bipolar is one of the ones that typically doesn't emerge until like your later teens. And that just felt so unfair because I'd had all of these years and, I done, and then all of a sudden this, this hits me and it's like I've got to deal with this. It, it felt really unjust. Um, so I was, you know, when I was diagnosed with, with bipolar type 2, I was, I, I was reluctant to start medication because I didn't want I didn't want to lose my creative edge. You know, I was, a, I was an artist, and I'm like, well, I, you know, I don't want to lose that. Um, but I was open to the idea. I probably wouldn't have been at all. I was open to the idea because my experience with, with Prozac sort of changing my entire paradigm or making it possible to see things in a different way had, had sort of prepared me for this. To, this is a possibility. Um, what I didn't really understand then, well, I didn't understand, first of all, that my creativity was not, was not connected to my misery. I mean, when, when you often feel inspired to try to cope with things when you're in, in the depths of despair, but what you, when you uncover that, that song that's there, that worship, that act of worship, that's not, that's not you. And, and, and I mean, it's, it's bigger than you. And um, it's bigger than whatever your, your, your mental state is. And uh, we'll watch a video in just a minute that I think does a pretty good job of, of kind of showing an example of that. But um, I was really, I mean, I was at risk of suicide and I was, um, I, it, it was, I wanted to drop out of school. I was, I was in a bad place. And so um, the medication was really the right thing to do. And so, it, again, it was sort of a gesture of love and trust. I'm like, well, I, it's going gonna, it's gonna to suck if I can't create anymore, but um, I, need to, I need to try this. So, uh, yeah, so let's watch, watch the next clip, which is about that whole idea of, um, oh, I'm going to lose my creativity if I, if I get better. So, let's watch this. He failed, though he tried his hardest. We wanted to be an artist. Sacre bleu, that's French for artist. We did the best art that he could. They said Will's art was no good. Will was sometimes up and sometimes down. He was probably bipolar. They ran poor Will right out of town. They gave him the proverbial cold shoulder. Sometimes we laughed, sometimes he cried. He cut himself and nearly died. I call him Will, that's short for Willem. He would take canvases and he would fill them with beautiful stuff. Some simple, some strange. They called him Furu, they called him Deranged. His brother said, Will, this is gonna destroy ya. Psychosis, delusions, all your paranoia. At last, Will could no longer deny him. He committed himself to a mental asylum. Well, that's kind of a downer, isn't it? Only it wasn't. Will received treatment at the asylum. He was perhaps more stable there than he was at any other time in his life. He created many works of art while he was there. 
including his greatest, and one of the greatest of all time. I know you know this piece, and I know you know this artist, because Will's full name, Willem's full name, was Vincent Willem Van Gogh. Vincent Van Gogh. And that work of art was The Starry Night. So, what do you think of my prospects as a rap artist? I wouldn't quit my day job if I were you. <laughs> Not just yet. <laughs> well, let's ask our callers. Uh, Barbara in Annapolis, what do you think? Love the song, love the starry night, but come on, the guy suicided. You're right, Barbara, he did. Van Gogh is very ill, and 19th century medicine couldn't treat him effectively. It would have been a different story if it had happened today. We've made a lot of progress over the last hundred years. Well, I guess I don't know why you wrote such an upbeat song when his story is so tragic. What's the message supposed to be? A lot of creative people suffer with mental illness, and many avoid treatment because they think it will stifle their creativity. That simply is not true. I love Willem's story because it shows that so clearly. He did some of his best work, including his masterpiece, while he was receiving treatment for his mental illness. So yeah, he wrote a lot of letters. He wrote letters to his brother Theo all the time. And the letters from that time while he was in the asylum are really beautiful and very, very cool. Um, anyway, so we'll wrap up here in, in uh, just a minute. Um, the last sort of part of my journey, I guess I would say, really really began with um, a book called A New Kind of Christian by Brian McLaren. Um, read that book and it really was, it was sort of revolutionary for me because it, it, for the first time, sort of opened up this new idea. So he, he talks about, in that book, he talks about how so many of the things we look at and the way questions are posed to us and the way questions were posed to Jesus because a lot of the time, you know, they were trying to trap him by asking him a trick question with no good answer. Um, you know, you've got this, you've got this, this line here and, and it's either this or this. And Jesus would come in and he would consistently answer with something that was like on another plane. It, it was, it was a, another way of, of seeing things that was beyond what anybody had considered. And uh, so that's kind of like the idea that God could be all loving and all powerful. Um, that, that he could do both of those things. Um, and, and that's... That was, he, McLaren doesn't use that example in, in, in the book, but that's, that's exactly the kind of thing that's been so transformational for me in my faith and uh, what we've, we've talked about here. So I started going to look out around, uh, around that same time, and I was doing a, a book study with, with some of my friends in Boulder. Uh, we read through this whole like, trilogy there of, of books that McLaren wrote. Um, and, uh, but really, at, at that point in my life, I was growing more and more into being able to love other people, which is really what, I mean, the, the two big commandments, love God and love other people, that's, that's so freeing to be able to do that and not have to worry about, it was a lot of pressure to feel that, well, this is everybody's choice, and so if I like you, I really need to convince you to make the right choice because otherwise you're gonna burn. And uh, that really, I mean, that, 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 that gets in the way of loving people. And, be able to just be friends with people and, and, and be with them. And that was, I mean, that was, that's what Jesus asked us to do. And uh, so it's, it's been, it's been uh, transformational for me. Um, and also it's helped me in loving myself more. And part of, part of recovery from mental illness, which is recovery, recovery is different. It's maybe not the best word because like when you recover from the chicken pox, you're better, or when you recover from a broken leg, it's healed. And, and recovery from mental illness, it's, it's usually not like it 
goes away. I mean, it's, but it's, it's stepping into um, uh, living a happier and healthier life. And, and I've been in that place for a number of years now. Um, and uh, so in, in that recovery, part of what you, part of, of, of doing that and part of what everybody has to do, whether you're mentally ill or not, learning to love yourself, the person that God made you to be. And, um, you know, with, with, there are a lot of crazy people who are really creative and gifted and, and, and brilliant in and, and all sorts of different ways. And so there are gifts that come with, along with the burden. And um, so that was kind of the message, one of the messages we were trying to send with this is your brain, really acknowledging, so this is, this is my brain and, and I, I'm, I can love myself for who God made me to be. Um, so let's, let's go ahead and watch this, this closing clip. We began our time today with a look at stigma, a look at some of the ideas and attitudes that surround mental illness in our culture. And if we don't talk about mental illness in our daily lives, if we don't talk crazy, that means the only time we ever encounter it is when we turn on our TVs after a horrible tragedy and we see a man described as a monster, the face of mental illness. And if you're like me, if you have a mental illness, and half of you do or did or will at some point in your life, if you have a mental illness and that's what you're seeing, the message is, hey, you out there, this is your brain, this monster. And that's not true. Now, I'm not denying that there are tragic consequences sometimes to untreated mental illness. But if that's the only picture of mental illness we get, no wonder nobody wants to talk about it. So I hope you go and talk about mental illness, talk crazy in your daily lives. I hope you tell people about this show. But the next time you turn on your TV and you're getting bombarded with that message, this is your brain. I want you to keep in mind this clip we're about to play. Because all of these people in this clip have one thing in common, mental illness. And just imagine how much poorer our lives would be without these people. Think about how much they've contributed to our world. So yeah, if you have a mental illness, you should definitely seek out help, seek treatment. But you should take some comfort in the fact that uh, crazy people can do some crazy awesome things. Thank you to our guests, Cerebellum and Cerebrum. Thank you to our callers. Uh, thanks for nothing to my call screener. Thank you for listening. My name is Michael Hanna. You've been listening to This Is Your Brain on KMR. This is your brain. 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 
So as we come to the table this morning, you're probably like me, thinking about, well, what level of crazy do I bring to the table? And I know for me, um, you could certainly add my name to the list, and I would bet we could really add all of our names to the list, that at some measure, somewhere on the continuum, we bring our own measure of crazy to the table. And uh, I know for me, there's been three different times in my life where I went through a very severe depression, and it was a long, slow crawl out of each one of those in a place where I didn't want to live anymore. And, and um, part of what I learned through that journey was to allow other people to be with me in it. One of them is in this room, my friend Jill over there. And uh, it took me a long time to get to that place where I wouldn't just suffer alone, but let people into it. And uh, something that God really spoke to me in the middle of all that was that whatever labels, whether it be depression or anxiety or bipolar or whatever, whatever labels might be there, even crazy. I felt like I was going crazy at one point in time, that that is not what most defines us. What most defines us is what Jesus says about us, that when we look in his eyes and look in his face and who he says we are, that's, that's our identity, that's who we really are. And when he looks at us, he looks at us and says, you're, you're my friend, you're my child, you're my beloved. I'm yours and you are mine, and it's his love that defines us. So as we come to the table and we think about the night when Jesus was betrayed and he took the bread and he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And in his body, he has given us the mind of Christ. So even if our mind is a little crazy, there's something deeper that defines us, and it's his mind. And that he also took the cup, and he poured it, saying, this is my blood, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sin. And we've sinned plenty out of all of our crazy stuff, huh? So as you come to the table today, come and bring your crazy self and know that he is crazy in love with you. God, we do need you. And God lives in every single one of us, right? So here's one thing I can tell you. A lot of you may not know this about me, but some of you do, that I'm also a counselor, a licensed counselor with a practice downtown. And I work here part-time at the church, and a lot of what I do here is counseling as well. And I can assure you of this. When we can talk about our struggles, and when we can come together and be there for each other and say, me too, we get healed, we get healthier, we, we grow, we come alive. When we experience God's love and acceptance, we move towards that. And when we can't talk about things and we're shamed or we're silenced for whatever reason or we feel rejected and isolated, we get sicker. We get more unhealthy. And if I had one wish, like a career aspiration, it would be that I would work myself out of a job. Like what I would love to see in our community, starting right here at this community, at the sanctuary, is that we could be a community to talk openly about things in a way that we come alongside and learn to love one another and be where we are and say, me too, and uh, walk alongside with each other and be a little taste of that kind of God's love to each other. So having said that, uh, Michael and I are actually going to lead a kind of a... Um, a gathering here on September 17th, the Talking Crazy Follow-Up Connect Conversations, and it's in your uh, S-News. But it's a chance to come together and join us for lunch and share a bit of your story and maybe share some resources or things with each other and some more scripture or videos or things like that that we want to do together. And just come and join us. And if that's not your thing, know that I'm available to come and talk to as well. Part of what I do here at the church is just meet with people, no charge, but to come and meet for some short-term counseling. And maybe you need some other resources and things, and I'd be happy to do that as well. So um, go in peace. There are, there are um, prayer people here. If you're not in peace and you want to... Well, you want to just be with somebody and talk about some things over here to the right or left. And the peace that surpasses all understanding is a peace that you can't work up. It sits deeper than you're crazy. It sits deeper than anything you might experience. There's a peace in there that is literally the life of Christ in you. So go in that peace. Amen. <laughs>